0: Welcome to the pilot episode of our new podcast, Something to Say, the show about music, sports, entertainment, and life from the 80s to today. Along with my friend Sean, I'm Chris, and we'll be your host for each episode. So let me take a quick minute to tell you what we're hoping this show will be about. We want this show to be about you, the listener, bands and sports teams and comics and movies and TV you like, activities you like to do, because we truly believe everyone has a story to tell everyone has something to say, and we want to hear and share those stories. We're going to cover topics you want to hear, have some really cool and interesting guests and segments. For our pilot episode, main segment and guest, a little bit later, we'll be having a really cool musician. He's going to join us in studio for an oral history of MTV. But for now, it's time to meet your podcast hosts. Sean, I'm going to turn the mic over to you because it's your turn to have something to say. Hey,
1: everybody. I'm so glad to be with you today. Uh, First of all, I cannot thank Chris enough. This is his brainchild and through his blood, sweat, tears and financial backing, this podcast is made possible. I am forever grateful and sincerely honored that I was asked to be co-host. I will do my best to uh, keep you guys entertained maybe give you guys some informative information to work with in just everyday life. And again, no politics. We all need a break. So, you know,
0: Sean, as we venture into this podcast and it's a little bit of a labor of love for both of us, uh, I know when we first spoke about it and kind of the information we wanted to get our listeners and what we wanted to contribute to that sea of podcasts and information out there, kind of what attracted you to, to join and be a part of all this?
1: Well, I, I think mostly that we agreed to not pick a side on politics and ramble on and on because everybody is just so sick of it. We want this to be fun, but we want it to be informative. We want it to be entertaining. Uh, Chris and I have always had just kind of a a natural flow uh, with our conversations. We can be you know in our 20s the last guy sitting on a bar stool because i was a comedian who had a show that night he was a dj who had a show that night and our first drink didn't even hit till after midnight so we'd be sitting there entertaining the bartenders and the wait staff and they'd let us stay late and it's not fake it's not scripted we just have this this flow he's more like a brother than a friend and we're just riffing and shooting the shit hoping you folks find it interesting, hoping we can make you laugh, and hoping that you learn something as well.
0: So usually a lot of our interactions late night would be, I would finish DJing in a club, and you, if you were not working there, would show up fairly intoxicated or be they're intoxicated or it's the end of the night with a band and like you said we would hold court whether it was magic, comedy, just shooting the shit with them. And there are there are nights we stayed watching the sun come up at bars two, three weekend nights all the time. Sure, and
1: in our defense, I mean other people started drinking at seven o'clock that night. And like I said, our first drink was after midnight, so You know, it isn't like we were stumbling or slurring or passing out or anything. It's just... Our nighttime started five hours later than everyone else's, so it ended five hours later than everyone else's. And it was fun times. We weren't getting arrested. We weren't causing any problems. We were just having a shit ton of fun.
0: Sure. And we're going to cover everything, like we said comedy, sports, music. You know, if you're stuck on an island, do you want to be able to watch as many comedy movies as possible or listen to as much music as you wanted to or watch as much sports as you wanted to?
1: Yeah, a combination of everything. I mean, we both grew up in the 80s. We weren't born in the 80s. We, Those were our formative years. So it's going to be from then till today. And it's going to be some serious life subjects, some lighthearted takes on serious subjects, some serious takes on lighthearted subjects. It's just life in general with an entertainment spin put on it. And it's going to be, you know, From our youth in the 70s to current day material and everything in between. But we promise you we're not going to bore the shit out of you with
0: politics. Who are some of the coolest celebrities you've ever met?
1: The coolest would be a guy by the name of John Panette. Uh, Not necessarily a household name, but most people from our generation would know who he was if I said he was the very – overweight comedian who did his famous bit about the Chinese all-you-can-eat buffet where he said, you've been here for an hour, you go now. What a sweetheart of a guy. And it couldn't have come at a better time because I had recently had a bad experience meeting a celebrity, and this guy was just the best. And I walked in kind of gun-shy. I was a new stand-up comic. I was opening two shows for him this night at a pretty big place in the area and he immediately made me feel welcome and disarmed me. He offered to sign any, anything that I had without being arrogant like, you must want my autograph. He saw that I had a CD in my hand and asked if it was something I wanted signed. Unfortunately, it was my opening music that I walk up to stage and had to find the sound guy. But that just gives you an idea of who he was. He knows that people are uncomfortable when they meet a celebrity. So we sat there for hours, did our first show, sat there for a long break, did our second show, and then sat there after. He was incredibly sweet. It was natural. It was not a put-on, super polite to the staff. Any of the fans that were allowed backstage, he was great. And our conversation was amazing. I was soaking up, loving every second of it. Had been a huge fan of his for years. And here's the kicker. At the end of the night, he said to me, I paid your food bill. I paid your bar tab, and for those of you that know me, that's no small fee, and then he... (laughs) Did he have a co-signer? (laughs) (laughs) He took a hundred dollar bill out of his wallet and forced it on me, and of course, I tried to deny, and he said, listen, you're going to insult me. I do really well. I know how much this club pays its opening acts, and I disagree with how well they pay you guys. I know how hard you work, and I thought you were excellent, and you made the show better for me because you got the audience pumped up. Please accept this tip. And he gave me $100 cash out of his own wallet and and just couldn't have been a kinder guy to everyone all night long. And I will always love him for that.
0: Any uh, celebrity encounters in the sports world that stick out to you?
1: Uh, kind of a outlier. And And if I could go back to the comedy thing, the other people that I've met who were super cool, I would have to say Jim Brewer. One of the most down-to-earth, coolest guys. I've talked about him on the podcast, talked about him to friends, absolutely love the guy, worship him. Idol. feel like we're around the same age, like the same music, love the same comedy stuff. Like we we would actually be friends if we happen to grow up in the same area. Um, So sports – you know, I've met a few here and there very briefly, nothing major to speak of like Michael Jordan or Tom Brady or Wayne Gretzky or anything like that. But one of the guys that I did meet from the world of sports was a guy by the name of Will McDonough. And yes. He's a legendary journalist from the Boston area. His son is even more famous. His name is Sean McDonough and he's a national broadcaster and – uh Will McDonough, I met him when I was at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and he approached me and my three friends that we were with, and what a really down-to-earth cool guy who was just not full of himself at all, wanted to just shoot the shit with the fans, was curious what teams we liked, where we were from, but not in like a... Sales pitch kind of cocky way. type yeah, of way, and and it wasn't like he was just being superficial. We really dug into some cool conversations, and and I walked away really thinking really highly of the guy. And had seen him on on TV broadcasting, you know, uh, mostly I think Patriots football was was maybe the beat that I remember him from.
0: Sure. Anyone in the music world? And I'm not talking like you paid $900 to meet Judas Priest and have him sign a poster and shake your hand and take a picture and you're gone eight seconds later.
1: Sure. So my music taste can be a little bit underground. What I mean by that is I was such a big fan in the 80s and 90s of like speed thrash metal. And I met very briefly some guys from Anthrax, Queensryche, I'm trying to think of other, Overkill, um, things like that. But I have a really cool story. I was uh, a college DJ. And I got to interview a band named Nuclear Assault. And they were just one of those underground speed metal bands, which there was a thousand of at the time. And they were playing this little club out in Hadley. It's had two names over the years, uh, Katinas and uh, I can't even remember the other name. But it was this cool club where you could be standing at a bar walk 50 feet past the bar and be standing front row for some really cool underground metal bands at the time. And it wasn't a huge place. Um, The Vertex, I think, was the other thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so Nuclear Assault was playing and the bass player of the band was just kind of hanging out and I struck up a conversation, asked if I could interview him for my college radio show. More than cool, more than welcoming. We ended up Hanging out and spending like time together for most of the day because he was from out of town. Uh, His bandmates were wherever they were and then said uh, that they needed a ride from the hotel to the venue. And I offered because I had a really large car at the time. And back in those days, Chris will, Chris will know what I'm talking about and so will everyone else. Are, everybody carried a baseball bat in their car for defense. <laughs> yes. you know. So mine was probably full of, you know, McDonald's wrappers and all that. And so these three three or four guys in an underground metal band hop in my car. We, me and the bass player had already been out and having a few drinks and did the interview and whatnot. They hop in my car and they go, whoa, cool, man, a fucking baseball bat. This dude's a psycho, you know, but <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. around our area, everyone had one because road rage w- didn't even have a label yet, but you always knew you needed some kind of defense if you ended up in the wrong part of town, you know, and uh, thankfully I've never needed to use the thing, but it was just everyone I knew carried a baseball bat in their car at the time and they got a kick out of that. Anyways, I give them a ride to the show. They absolutely kicked ass. I couldn't tell you who they opened for that night at this point because I've seen hundreds and hundreds of thrash metal shows always in the middle of the pit and just loving life. But uh, super cool guy. For me, it was, you know, meeting the Beatles. But to everyone else, they've never even heard of nuclear assault. But, yeah, it it was an awesome experience. And uh, it just let me know that not everybody in the entertainment field is an asshole.
0: Yeah. So a couple quick hits for me in my early comedy career. One of my highlights was I got to open for Adam Sandler in New York City and Times Square.
1: That's awesome. As
0: well as years later, uh, be a little bit on set uh, background, no acting credentials, no sad card for, unfortunately, what became his his worst movie, Little Nicky. But I have a signed poster and my kids get a kick out of that and they still watch it to to this day. Um, You know, as far as... Nicest celebrity – when when I've gone to the Super Bowl, they have this really cool thing called the Salute to Service Lounge and they'll get a couple NFL stars who aren't in the big game and they'll come and it will just be for service members and my friend Jason who's uh, former Air Force and and active uh, at a federal base – He is able to get us in there. You're allowed to bring a guest, and they kind of do some Q&A, and they put on some food, and it's only for veterans. And who I met and and talked to and was just one of the most down-to-earth, humble, signed any autographs, took any pictures, was Drew Brees from the New Orleans Saints.
1: Nice, and that guy's legendary.
0: He is. He was great. Um, as far as uh, musical acts, I- I've met quite a few, but someone who just has, when you hear about that Southern hospitality and Southern charm, like looks you in the eye when they're talking, wants to know your life story and talk to you, uh, incredibly polite is uh, country megastar Kenny Chesney.
1: Nice.
0: Just a great guy overall, and, and we're going to talk throughout the episodes and through our special guests uh, because we've just been in positions where we've been around kind of that, and I used to live in California, and I was around it a bit, and we've had some life experiences at, at concerts, at comedy shows, and just in entertainment where we've been exposed to that maybe more than the average person, and we're going to have a lot of cool stories to share throughout our podcast.
1: Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to it, and just uh, as a footnote, I mean, <clears throat> Chris knows people I've met just from the stories that we share on a personal level. And I know that, uh, you know, I'm not going to ruin it and go into details, but I know that he had just a really cool experience also meeting the drummer from the Foo Fighters as well.
0: Correct. And um, back to Humble. And again, it was back in their beginnings, but I was in a bar when there was only 20 people and this band called Pearl Jam came out and played right through their entire album 10. And just obviously that was decades ago. And, You know, from what I see in the media, they don't seem like they've changed a whole lot, but that was uh, a great humbling experience, too, to be around that much talent.
1: Yeah, two things come to mind. You know, if you knew then what you know now about that band, and also, man, I'm jealous as fuck.
0: Oh, yeah, I'd be the guitarist now because he'd be dead. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It's time for our next segment. And one of the advantages of not having Fortune 500 sponsors is we don't have people telling us what we can or cannot say. And if nothing else, the world is lacking a little bit of truth these days. So we have a new segment that is going to be hosted by Sean, and it's called In Your Face. What he's going to be able to do is pick any topic he chooses and have a rant for as long as he would like about it. I'm never going to know the subject until he starts talking live on air. I'm not going to interrupt him, and I'm going to turn it over to Sean. All right. For this episode's
1: In Your Face, the subject is Grown Adults Making a Big Deal About Their Own Birthday. After the age of 21, you only get a party on round numbers. That's 30, 40, 50, etc., it's okay if you want to go out for a few drinks on your birthday with close friends. That's cool. But don't overblow it into something special, because it ain't. Also, you don't get a birthday month. You don't get a birthday week. You don't even get a birthday weekend. You get a birthday. Now, when you do meet out with your friends, don't get the beads or the silly hats or anything with blinking lights on it and crap like that. Okay, you're 37 years old, Lisa, so calm the fuck down. Under no circumstances is it ever, and I mean ever, okay to wish yourself a happy birthday. Social media, texting, email, or the random announcement at work. And this also includes crowbarring it into every conversation that day. Like when a coworker asks to borrow your stapler, and your response is, really, Steve? On my birthday, ha ha ha. Yeah, when you're in line at the grocery store and you're at the register and there's a big crowd of people around and you're looking at two flavors of gum trying to decide which one, and you loudly claim, ah, what the hell, I'll get them both. After all, it's my birthday. And everyone within 14 square miles can hear you. All you're doing is fishing for happy birthdays and you fucking know it. And back to the social media thing, don't try to disguise it as something else, like a picture of dark clouds behind you as you take 19 selfies waiting for the one you think looks good enough, and then you add the message, figures, it's probably going to rain on my birthday. What you're really doing is asking 278 people you barely know who have never sent you a card your entire life to wish you a happy birthday in the comment section now your life has meaning doesn't it and then around midday as the messages slow down you add the pic of you and your kid or the pic of you and your spouse oh look what so and so got me or look what so and so did for me on my birthday and now the oops almost forgot happy birthday messages come rolling in And then the next day, a handful trickle in saying, hey, happy belated." Yeah, okay. You got 317 people wishing you a happy birthday, don't you, Travis? Guess what? You're 43 years old. And not one of those 317 people actually remembered it was your birthday until after a computer told them it was. Oh, and if you're that extra special kind of douchebag, you'll make sure to thank each and every one of them individually by name in the comments section. All of this is meant to be funny and lighthearted, so please, if I've offended you in any way, address all hate mail to youcanttakeajoke at gofuckyourself.com.
0: Welcome to the next segment of our podcast. This is titled, You Don't Know Jack. And what we do is we bring in my 11-year-old son, Jack, and we ask him a question of which he would never really possibly know the answer to, but we kind of want to see what his response would be, and we're going to make some commentary on it. So Jack, today we're going to talk about movies from the 80s. Okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the titles of some movies, and you just tell us, and I know you haven't seen any of these, what you think the plot is about. Are you ready? Yes. Let's do this. First movie, Howard the Duck.
2: I think the movie Howard the Duck is about this duck that tries to fit in somewhere, but he's not really accepted anywhere.
0: Okay, so the story is actually of how a studio flushed $37 million down a toilet on a movie about a drunk bird. My last name's Howard, and I wouldn't even watch that shit. (laughs) (laughs) Next movie, Three Men and a Baby. What do you think that Three Men and a Baby is about?
2: Three men and a baby. Okay, so I think that three men and a baby would probably be about... There is this group of, like, guys um, who are, like, friends or maybe brothers or cousins that they find, like, a little child or a baby, and they have to try and take care of it.
0: Okay. Actually, you're close. It's the story about what happens when you don't bother to use birth control. They're doing another remake
1: of that movie. It's going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone... Jean-Claude Van Damme, and as the baby, LeBron James, every time he doesn't get the call.
0: <laughs> All right. Next movie from the 80s you've never seen. What do you think this is about? Killer Clowns from Outer Space.
2: Um. So I think this Killer Clowns from Outer Space is about – there's these be- – a bunch of clowns. That just kind of go around town, and they're kind of like the clowns of the town, everyone calls them.
0: Okay, close. It's actually the story of how even from a planet four million miles away, there's nothing funny about clowns. All right, next movie, The Toxic Avenger.
2: All right, so I think the movie Toxic Avenger is about a group of, like, friends, but there's this one, like, really toxic guy, and he's mean to everyone, kind of, and nobody just likes him.
0: Okay, it's actually like a really bad B-horror movie from the 80s. It's the story of a wimpy janitor at a gym who had to fall into a vat of acid and become horribly deformed and transformed into the hulking beast the world knows today as The Rock. Actually, The Toxic Avenger is about my ex-wife's divorce attorney. <laughs> Last one before you let you go today, Jack. Right. Dirty Dancing. What do you think the movie Dirty Dancing is about?
2: Um, I think Dirty Dancing is about this guy who goes to like a high school dance or some sort of dance and every and like this girl asks him to dance and he agrees but he doesn't know how to dance and he screws his life up.
0: Close. It's actually the story of how every man in America was forced by his girlfriend to sit through an hour and 40 minutes of actor Patrick Swayze in a movie not named Point Break or Roadhouse. And you know what, Jack? If your parents didn't believe in dirty dancing, you wouldn't be here, buddy. Well, that wraps up this episode of You Don't Know Jack. I'm sure you've got a room to clean and chores to do. Thanks for joining us, Jack.
2: All right, yeah, bye.
0: And
1: it's titled, You Don't Know Jack, and I do, but I've got to be honest with you, sometimes I wish I didn't. Well... I
2: can say the same about you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) On that that note, get out of my house. Have a good day, Jack. With pleasure. See you, buddy. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: All right, and welcome back. It's time for our featured segment. We've been working on for you guys a long time on this. We're really excited I want my MTV. This is gonna be a great episode. We're gonna rehash a lot of great memories, put you all in kind of a time machine. And to do that, we've gotta have people who know what they're talking about when it comes to music. So we are so, so lucky to have a very special guest with us in studio today. So if you have gone out to see a bar band in the past couple of decades in the New England area, there's no way you did not run into our next special guest, Aaron Fay, in some form or another playing in the smallest dive bars to opening for Nationwide Acts. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks. Tell uh, our audience a little bit about yourself and your kind of history as it relates to music and your love of music. Uh, let's see.
3: Uh, I, I call myself a cover band artist, if you will. You know, cover song artist, we all cover bands, good money-making experiences, we, uh, everything from new wave to blues, top 40. Uh Currently, our,
0: our featured act is the Rockstar Karaoke. Okay. Now explain that because a lot of people around the country aren't familiar with it, but it's kind of your a great niche of yours that you've had for many years. I, it's, it's awesome. It's
3: been such a, a great uh, experience for like 16 years we've been doing it. What it is, um, we play, you sing. Choose a song, 800 songs on a list, uh, lyrics on the screen, uh, just like a karaoke show and the band's playing along with you and, uh, you know, the
0: guitar player's spazzing out. And, you know, it's a big rock star experience and... uh so as opposed to going to your local Chinese restaurant and the guy in the corner looking at the eight inch black and white TV, and you're singing to just your table of group of friends, um, you're actually it's as if though you're in the band. You don't you don't pay for any of the equipment. You don't go to any of the practices. You don't learn any instruments, but you get to be front and center stage singing to a fully. Rehearsed band in the background. Absolutely. Walk right up. Uh, the
3: The band is tight. Everything from Taylor Swift to Green Day, the Beatles to Blink-182. There's so many amazing songs in there. And uh, for all of the bad singers that we've endured over the years, there's always that ex- amazing experience when some comes up and, and nails Adele out of nowhere. The most unassuming-looking person. They come up and they, they wail on
1: you know someone like you. Sure. Yeah, I can attest to that too. Uh, I've been in the crowd several nights and seen Aaron and, and and his bandmates doing rock star karaoke night and the difference is overwhelming compared to a regular karaoke machine. The sound quality, the vibe, the atmosphere and I was pleasantly surprised with the amount of talent we have of people just everyday walk of life who can walk in there and really sing the shit out of a song mm-hmm. and it makes it that much better because these guys are expert musicians and it's a really
0: cool experience nice so roundtable real quick before we dive into all this really really cool mtv stuff uh we do and know what we love in life uh tell me briefly really what what started your affinity or love affair with music
3: those teen years you know uh seeing it mtv you know uh it just—it was something in me. I knew that I wanted to do. It. Actually, I was a drummer at first before I became a frontman. Um, yeah, when music speaks to you, just got to come out. Um, I'm, I'm a theater guy too, you know. So I was always performing. Sure. And uh, you know, those teen years—those were integral. And you know, <clears> that's. <throat> oh yeah, it had to be. What about you, Sean?
1: Uh, for me, it's more of fandom. I mean, I always wanted to be a musician. I bought a drum set in my teens. Neighbors complained, had to sell it. Uh, later in life, bought a bass guitar and I was getting free lessons and I was all psyched about it. And the guy giving me free lessons, he ended up, uh, moving away. Uh, he got married, had a kid and just kind of, you know, settled down into everyday life. And, uh, I'm still pissed at him to this day for not getting his fucking priorities straight. I mean, he's putting food on the table for his wife and kid instead of giving me free bass lessons. I can't and I'll, believe the capacity of him. that man. Uh, he's one of the sweetest guys ever, really. And it was a cool experience, but um, the only other thing I've ever done is just dabbled with singing with like uh, party bands and rock bands, not as a singer, but sitting in for a tune or two. And I ended up doing this rendition of Wild Thing more of the Sam Kinison style than the classic rock version and it just took on a life of its own man. I mean, there was bar nights where people would pile in between midnight and one thirty in the morning and start chanting my name because they wanted me to go up and do Wild Thing. And the band uh, was called Floyd Patterson Band is the one that I did it with the most. And they actually had to tell people, relax, we promise we'll get to it. Just let us play our stuff first. And I actually <laughs> felt bad about that, but it brought the house down every time. And I think my favorite part of doing Wild Thing is without fail, every single time I did it, one of the two bar owners would come up and go, you know, I had a couple complaints about your lyrics being kind of offensive. Do you think you could tone it down this time? And I would look him dead in the eye and go, nope, I don't think I could. And he'd go, eh, go ahead and do it anyways.
3: <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I believe we did The Wild Thing uh, at least once or twice in, in our ta- Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think we were afraid we wouldn't know it good enough for your – Oh, please. No, it was, it, it's true a story fun
1: thing, man. I think I've done it with, I would be surprised if I haven't done it with at least 12 different bands, but with Floyd Patterson, I wouldn't be exaggerating if I said I did it at least 25 times over like a
0: five-year span. Talk about talent. <sighs> oh, my God. He is incredible and just a great guy. Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> it's funny uh, that you're here today, Aaron, because your life and mine have crossed at times when we weren't even aware uh, that we've been in each other's lives. You worked at a radio station um, for for quite a while locally, a classic rock station. Mm. I responded to an ad for a show they were having called Hey Mom on Rock 102, which was a classic rock station in the area. And all you had to do was submit a list of 10 songs you would play in an hour. And I think you had to mail it in. It wasn't even email back then. So I did that. I got a call. They asked me to come in studio, do it for an hour, Uh, had a blast. I have the tape in my safe somewhere, and it's like from the early 90s. And uh, that led to someone who owned a local mobile disc jockey company getting in touch with me, ask if I wanted to go to a DJ school, which they had to teach you kind of how to MC and mix music and do private parties and events. And that started a 20, almost 25-year career as a professional mobile and club disc jockey so our paths always crossed in the bars and things like that i always remember growing up to classic rock helping my dad around the house uh doing things in the yard and it's it's just always been like i can never be around the house without music playing in the background all it it's it's constant it's just it it just has a special meaning to me and and being also a musician like yourself, Aaron, uh, you know, you kind of have to have an appreciation for for everything. You might not leave here and listen to Adele or Taylor Swift. You might throw on Metallica or Bono or the Beastie Boys. But you still have to have an appreciation because of your audience. So because of that, I whether I like it or not, I, I just have a really broad appreciation for for all kinds of music.
3: I'm with you on that. Um, if, even in silence, there's music in my head, you know, And uh, and I always tell anyone who wants to play music for a living, you know, being in a cover band or this, that and the other or even writing your own songs, you should listen to everything. Certainly when I was a teenager and I went through the heavy metal years and then, you know, you get older, your taste changed and you accept, OK, there's new wave too. And uh, it's important if, if you, you know, you have to absorb it all. You know? Sure.
1: Yeah, and and with them talking about their lives intertwining, I wanted to interject and say that's pretty much how I met both these guys, mm. and uh, we've been friends for decades ever since. And uh, before you get the wrong idea about the three of us uh, meeting in bars, all three of us were <laughs> actually working when we met. Certainly, not yes. going to lie to you, I've spent many a night proving how Irish I am and bellying up to the bar and sitting on a stool for too many hours but uh i went everything from dishwasher cook and uh bouncer um to actually performing my own live stand-up comedy shows in the bar scene. And Chris has been uh, a super close friend for coming up on 25 years at this point. And Aaron is just one of my favorite people. Whenever I run into him, I am just so genuinely happy to see him out. He's just one of those great people. And if it weren't for the local music scene, we would have never even met. Not going to sit here and tell you that we're best friends and (laughs) call each other every day. But I will tell you, he's one of those handful of people that I'm genuinely happy. And I want to thank him for spending time with us today.
0: For sure, Aaron. Wow, I, thank it, you. For, uh, blushing.
1: <laughs>
3: and, for you.
0: and for any of our audience out there that wants to kind of see or hear more of you, any Facebook or, or website band links we can give to them? Certainly. There's
3: a uh, uh, maxstone.com, M-A-X-X-T-O-N-E. Uh, there's the Facebook as well. Uh, I, I share a lot of music from the past 30 years on my uh I made a music page, you know, the cool. notorious Aaron Fay. Nice. Uh, just old, you know. We're talking stuff from early in the 30 years ago when we met back at that local bar. Sure. You know that era, and at, what people don't know is that's the only place we could network back then. You know, you when I wanted to sing in bands, I had to go to bars to meet musicians. Floyd Patterson being one of them. They used to sneak me into a, an open mic. You know, when I was 17 years old, summer of '89. You
1: know, yeah, and there was no smartphones. The internet was barely a thing yet, and so
3: cassette we, demos. And we used to you wait know, for our, some uh,
1: local newspaper type thing called the Valley Advocate, which is part of a nat- national. Thing, That's yeah? right. And uh, just to know who was going to be playing on Saturday night, instead of just pulling a phone out of our pocket and having the right answer in 14 yeah. seconds, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't. I wouldn't give it up for anything, man. Those were some fun times Absolutely. and a lot simpler, and, innocent. Uh, you know. Yeah. Coming of age. And we actually paid attention to the band instead of staring straight down and scrolling. Oh, yeah. Annoying, but people who do that shouldn't get too close to when I'm performing. I, I've I've literally
3: reached down and you know I, I'd be on the chicken box stage on Nantucket, 500 people in the room, places going bonkers. Is that one girl in an argument with her boyfriend texting them, and I'm like, you know, and I ran, and I reach down and scribble <laughs> on her phone. We've taken phones, we've we've taken girls' phones, taken our own pictures, sent out to your boyfriend. You know, it's, that's it's, my wa- that's
0: why my wife's not allowed at your shows anymore. <laughs> I love the uh, handful of
1: artists that actually uh, confiscate all cell phones That's at great. every shows now, That's and, great. and it's on a pretty large scale, and they've had some success with it. But yeah, man, what, you're never going to get that moment back. Why don't you enjoy it and then use your phone before and after you're there? Be
0: it's, in the now. So, you know, by the time this um, broadcasts or someone's listening to it a year from now, uh, Something that was a little disturbing to me that I read last Saturday, uh, Live Nation and Ticketmaster, the behemoths who run the ticketing industry, are spending these months during uh, COVID to completely change their app. And so anyone who who goes to a lot of concerts and events like we do know more and more you're seeing you will not be mailed a ticket Your phone will be your entry and there's a barcode and everything like that. Here's the change they're making they expect to have in place by February 2021, according to Reuters and New York Post to report. They're going to have a section on your app where your ticket, which is on your phone, will not become activated. It will just be a clear screen. It will not be activated until you submit a negative COVID test within 72 hours of attending the concert. And that's going to be for every event, for every ticket they sell. What do you guys think about that?
3: I am not surprised. Uh, (laughs) I actually hadn't heard that. So as you were coming out of your mouth, this in my face, what? Uh, I am not surprised. It's I'll do what I have to do to see a show right now. I don't know about you fellas, the mask doesn't bother me. That's very interesting. It's...
1: Wow! <laughs> I had actually I had actually heard that that is one of two options to get in. The other will be a uh, wristband issued to people uh, who have been vaccinated, and that will get you out of needing a, a negative COVID test. I have to say this. I look at it from a logic standpoint. I'm a huge fan of this because I think the only yeah. other option was to not have any shows this Ever, year. Yeah. And, and if you're going to put... 20-something, 30-something thousand people in a confined space and you can prove that nobody there has COVID, Then let's fucking rock on, man, because I miss live shows so much. It's ridiculous. And I don't want to complain about it, man. There's people out there dying. There's people out there who are having lingering sick effects. So I don't go on and on about it, but just because it came up in conversation and me from a personal standpoint, when it comes to COVID, the one thing in my life that has changed is how much I see live music and I miss it. I really genuinely do. Right before the
3: shutdown I mean, I remember every every day of February, right up to the beginning of March, I was so lucky. I never get to see concerts. I'm busy work, working. I've got a family. We took a night off of work of, at one of our residencies, and we got to actually go see as a band, we got to go see the band Ween in New Haven, one of my favorite bands, and I hadn't seen a show, and I've never seen Ween live. Cool. And they are just an amazing, quirky, psychedelic rock band, but they're, I don't know if you're familiar with their stuff. Yep. But I'll never forget, and I'm so glad that the last show I got to see was my favorite band. And literally two weeks later, it was it was all different.
1: How and, cool is that? Man? So happy, and you didn't know it was coming
3: either. No, nah. no. Nice. It, the, the news reports were, you know, like,
1: oh, that that looks awful.
3: And day by day, things were getting canceled, and the shutdown
1: came. I have the exact opposite experience than the last live show I saw, which was just a couple days before the shutdown. Uh, I had talked my girlfriend into trying this new cover band that neither one of us had seen. but I And I will not mention their name because I'm about to trash the <laughs> shit out of them. Yes. But I went and I will after. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't believe because <laughs> uh, any artist, I, I give them credit for going up there. And they have a good following and they have a good reputation. Uh-huh. But, man, we went to see this band. And I'm telling you right now, man, I think they might have done a different kind of set and maybe it had something to do with it being St. Patrick's Weekend. But the music was just shit we never heard before, song after song after song after song after song, on top of the fact that the average age of people in the crowd, the night in the venue we went to was right around 200 years old. So it was just one of those nights where we didn't know the world was going to be shut down two days later for, I don't know, 10 months to two years. But it was, and we laugh about it to this day when we think that a great band was playing the same night and we were going to go see them, but we just tried to do something different. We could have seen Back in Black. Ah, And those guys, man, I'm telling you right now, they fucking bring it every time. Amazing. 30 years incredible. Yeah,
0: Who knew the world would turn into Footloose, no dancing allowed? (laughs) (laughs) And and that is a fact. Uh, I did
3: a handful of gigs over the summer. A deck at a local place, you know, big deck, socially distanced tables. And I'll tell you what, people are more appreciative now. They're like, wow, music, awesome. Play what you want. Yeah, I'll play Mustang Sally Lady, no problem. But people got up to dance, and it was heartbreaking to see. Well, of course, they were infringing on other people's social distancing space. You know, they're dancing around. They're drunk. They're having fun. And it was heartbreaking to see the staff say, no, no,
0: you you can't dance. Sorry. The the last concert that I saw... before everything happened was about six weeks before, and it was similar to your experience in that um, the acoustics were off, the instrument playing was horrible, uh, and it was such bad musicianship that I actually went up to the player afterwards and told him how horrible I thought He was as a musician. I remember that. Thank you. (laughs) No, it was actually my son's (laughs) school trumpet recital. (laughs) Did you throw him (laughs) a beat? He plays drums now. So you guys want to talk about MTV? Absolutely. Okay. What we're here for? (laughs) Let's do this. Three simple letters from the alphabet: MTV. Three letters that represent style, personality, and the cult of coolness for generations of fans. For many of us, it provided the soundtrack to our lives. To anyone who grew up throughout the 80s, it meant racing home after school to watch music videos ranging from Walk This Way to Billie Jean to Living on a Prayer to Like a Virgin. It meant hours in front of the TV watching endless back-to-back music videos or calling in to vote for Friday night video fights to help pick the top videos of the week. It affected our social language and behavior, clothing styles, friendships, and music tastes for an entire decade. It invaded not only TV and music, but movies, sports, politics, religion, and cultures around the world. It was common ground for everyone. The popular kids, the jocks, the cheerleaders, the geeks, and the burnouts. In one afternoon, you could go from watching U2 singing Where the Streets Have No Name, which was a guerrilla-style video shot in the streets of L.A. with hand cameras, to an extreme opposite, such as Madonna's Express Yourself, which in 1989 cost $5 million to produce. To appreciate what it was like to grow up in the MTV generation, think of this. It's the day after the Super Bowl, and it's Monday, and everyone's sitting around talking about the game all day. In the 80s, that was every Monday, talking about what new video debuted, what new outfit Madonna or Prince wore, or rating the models in the Hot for Teacher video. It brought us together on the school bus, at the work water cooler, school dances, nightclubs, and at the dinner table. So, guys, what has MTV meant to you personally in life? And what is your single greatest memory of MTV?
3: The, the MTV, that was the coming of age years. You know, 12 years old when we finally got cable. It, it meant everything. It was your do- the doorway to the, to the world. And music, you know, that was the the years we discovered music, and you now these amazing images go along with it. You know, Madonna, man, my lord, who didn't have a crush on Madonna? Um, but I, I have to say, it's uh, it's Thriller, Thriller. The world shut down when Thriller came on, and uh, to the tune of I, I, I have paper route. And you go knocking on a door, and they showed Thriller on the hour every hour for the first month or so. And, nope, sorry, come back. We're watching Thriller. <laughs> <laughs> to collect paper money. <laughs> to collect paper money. And I'm like, well, I'd seen Thriller 30 times at this point. I was good. It was a Sunday afternoon. and But the world shut down when that, when that came out. And I'd have to say, of all the amazing moments, that's the one that really stuck out. The most
1: that's a cool choice because that's not really my genre when it comes to music but i was fascinated by the video yeah i mean it, that's one of the coolest things about mtv you yeah know? yeah and we're going
0: to go over a lot of that later too so it's cool you brought that up what about you sean
1: uh what it meant to me personally really was hours and hours of entertainment when i was alone i wasn't lonely you know and uh it's kind of when you form your views of what's cool, or what you like, or maybe what you want to try to be. Um, and also, just fun, you know what I mean? Uh, from my mid-teens to my mid-twenties, it was all videos with a handful of shows. And uh, what really, really uh, was a huge part of my life musically from the MTV years was hair metal, because the look and the image was as important, if not more, than the music. And unfortunately. That shouldn't be but it is what it is and uh, I love shows like Beavis and Butthead and Jackass coming out of MTV. Just hours of entertainment really uh, in a way influenced my comedy. Um, And then you also asked what's the single greatest moment for me? Two words, Headbangers Ball. I was obsessed. I'm I'm a lifelong metalhead. I don't hide that. I've given all genres of music a chance. I do like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But almost all of my taste tends to lead towards hard rock and heavy metal. And it, it, it came to a point where I was taking a VCR and recording every episode of Headbangers Ball. And then I bought an adapter cord and a second VCR. And I took just the songs that I liked and made master tapes. And I have somewhere in storage VCR tapes with hours upon hours of heavy metal videos. And some of them are mainstream shit that everybody knows. And some of them are very obscure and may have only aired once on MTV. And I would love to dig those out someday when I have time and go through them and just relive those memories. But yeah, for me, the the single greatest thing to come out of it
0: personally would be Headbangers Bull. We're going to talk a lot about people whose careers at Can make or break. Um, But let's talk for a moment about established acts who were already selling out stadiums and world tours. You know, there were many already popular, well known bands that had large fan bases before MTV even existed. Some examples amongst many are Aerosmith, Van Halen, Kiss, Tom Petty, Rolling Stones, The Who, Bruce Springsteen, that didn't necessarily need the exposure as much as the newer bands. How do you feel MTV hurt or helped their careers or or the thought that they kind of had to jump on the bandwagon? Um, what do you think it did for already established bands?
1: Uh, for me, I mean, it, it can help uh, more than it can hurt because when it comes to being in entertainment, exposure is the name of the game. And it became one more way to get music out there. One more way to be heard and now seen, uh, people could be drawn to you now based on your image instead of just how you sounded on the radio. And so it can only help and uh, the cream of the crop would rise to the top uh, based off of exposure because, yeah, getting a video on MTV is going to get you heard. But if it's crap, you're not going to sustain. If it's great, it's just going to make you that much more liked and then you're going to sell more albums. You're going to have more people buying tickets. You're going to sell more merchandise and then they're going to be waiting for your next album. So it's really just – it's basically like the radio on steroids. Agreed.
3: Uh, what was cool is that people don't realize is that, well, for, in the 70s, rock bands were making promotional videos. You know, you'd see Led Zeppelin, Boston, Fleetwood Mac, all these amazing 70s, what you would call classic rock bands. But they didn't have a medium or a ways like VCR uh, wasn't really a household thing in the late 70s. You know, it would cost a zillion dollars, you know, to get a tape when you did. But MTV comes along and they... That's the first place I ever saw Led Zeppelin. It was like it was a promotional video of something. They didn't show Led Zeppelin videos, but they eventually started showing "Song Remains the Same." Right? What's this? This is amazing. This isn't, you know, your usual top forty fare. I think uh, the established artists it helped a lot because uh, upcoming rock fans like m- me, I, I said, "Oh, that's them. I've heard of them on the radio.
1: I get to see them now. They're amazing."
3: Right. And
1: uh, and it reaches middle America and maybe you know people who are casual fans. Um, you know, a lot of bands have these established niches that they're popular in, and MTV would help them become more mainstream just mm. from the same music because now people who wouldn't have given that a listen are just fascinated by music videos and they'll sit through a bunch and it kind of grew on them.
0: So, you know, we got a bunch of great behind-the-scenes information and research on the show, and, and I think a lot of you out there are going to learn stuff you never knew about a tumble beginnings and how it almost went broken and who saved it and who caused some seismic shifts in, in the station uh, as a television broadcast medium. So ask you guys, you know, we know when MTV came out in 1981, but if you had to kind of look back at everything before, say, 1980, any type of musical influence in what the music world looked like, and this is purely just shot in the dark, yes, who or what do you two feel possibly inspired the creation of MTV?
1: Inspired the creation of it? I have never really even thought of that. Um, I know you mentioned 1981 for when MTV became a thing, but... I don't even think it was available where I lived until probably around eighty four would be my guess. Correct, somewhere in that range. I actually remember this really cool girl at the time, woman now that I went to high school with, um, coming up to me, and she kind of had a little bit of a punk hairdo, and she seemed like she was just you know on you know the outskirts of mainstream society. A good friend. We always got along and she knew that I was into music and she told me about MTV the day it was going to premiere and that she watched it and loved it. And I think on day two, I became hooked just based off of her recommendation from the mid eighties. But uh, who would have, what would have inspired the creation of it? Uh, I've never thought of it and I really can't even think of of what might, what may have.
3: Well, I I think it was, it was bound to happen. I think uh, mainstream society, they were just clamoring for it. And I, it's a great way to a sell music, sell the artist, sell clothes, sell anything. And they, let's face it, that's what they were doing. We bought it and gladly because it was awesome. How here many? I, here how, go. many
1: peop, how many girls in high school in the mid '80s dressed like Madonna? Absolutely,
3: not enough. <laughs> not enough. Yeah, that's a good, <laughs> good way enough. to put it. But I just think it was it was just bound it was bound to happen. It had to happen. Sure, and uh, oh yeah, for we got cable TV, and that was that was then Continental Cable Vision was our yes. local, the yep. local, but they are drilling in the streets, and when they were drilling closer to your street you knew it was coming it was common. and then they finally got to your street and you're like cable today we're like no we have to wire it oh,
0: uh, i man. think i'd have to look back at the friends i had growing up during your formative years like 10 to 15 how many of them were friends and how many i you i was using just to get to go to their house to watch mtv
3: absolutely you have an atari you have uh, mtv great this
1: is amazing and you yes please you mentioned the influence on how people dressed and looked i mean uh, I wasn't the only guy who permed my mullet in the 80s. And
0: thank you, John Bon Jovi, for that. He's a good man. So to go back to the very beginning of what became MTV, we actually have to time hop to the 60s and 70s. The Beatles had used music videos to promote their records starting in the mid-60s, like you were talking about Led Zeppelin. The creative use of music videos within their 1964 film, A Hard Day's Night, particularly the performance of the song Can't Buy Me Love, actually led MTV later to honor the film's director, Richard Lester, with an award for basically inventing the music video. Jump forward to 1974, Gary Van Haas, vice president of Televac Corporation, introduced a concept to distribute a music video channel to record stores across the United States. So you go in, record store, and there's there's a promotional video playing that's supposed to be just for the label, but hey, maybe it will keep people's interest in the store. Cool. Hmm. And he promoted the channel. It was called Music Video TV to distributors and retailers in May 1974 in a big ad he took out on Billboard. The channel featured video disc jockeys, signed a deal with U.S. Cable in 1978 to expand its audience from retail to cable television. It tanked and the service was no longer even active by the time MTV launched in 1981. Fast forward to 1977, Warner Cable, which was a division of Warner Communication and a precursor to the Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment Group, and Amex, yes, your credit card, American Express. They launched the first two-way interactive cable television system named Cubed, Q-U-B-E, in Columbus, Ohio. The Cube system offered many specialized channels. One of these specialized channels was something called Sight on Sound, a music channel that featured concert footage and music-oriented television programs. With this interactive cube service, viewers could vote for their favorite song and artist. These events all build up to what happened next, and I'm going to tell you right away, you and most of our audience are going to get this answer wrong, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Out of all the talented musicians and recording artists throughout all generations to that date in time, say late 70s, who in the music industry would you guess was the single biggest influence who really should be credited for creating what would eventually become the foundation of MTV? Ed Sullivan. Elton John. You ready for the answer? <laughs> yeah. you, you, if it makes you feel better, if I gave you five hours, you wouldn't have guessed it. Great. The guitarist for the band The Monkees, Mike Nesmith.
3: Uh-huh. That guy's well, genius is, television is, is strong. Television and music. Yeah. Look what they did. I mean, they, you know, Americanized version of the of the Beatles and they they blended
2: they weren't the music.
1: A, they didn't make music videos. They became their own TV show. Which
3: was a which b- is half hour music long video. video, yeah. yeah. So, Amazing.
0: the first major precursor to MTV to gain any viewer traction was a show called Pop Clips, a television series created by former monkey-turned-solo artist Mike Nesmith, whose attention had turned to the music video format in the mid to late 70s, So get this, 1975, this guy records a solo song title, Rio, look look it up on YouTube, those of you listening at home, Rio, Mike Nesmith, super cheesy, he's asked to make a promotional video out of it, and make almost a nonsensical mini movie out of it, so he has all these set designs and all these costume changes, they present the finished copy to the record label executives, and at the end of it, they give him a standing ovation. Then ask him if he can make these type of videos for other artists, where it's not just the concert footage of Led Zeppelin or of Fleetwood Mac, have a concept to go along with the music. Then they package him to the show Pop Clips and shopped it around to the three major networks. They all rejected it. But in doing so, he connected with John Lackin. Remember that name. He's a journalist who was at the time running an all news radio station. He sees Pop Clips and says, You know, Mike, you can make a whole channel out of these videos. That's the day MTV was born and John Lack became the co-founder. Mike Nesmith said, I'd rather work behind the scenes and kind of help him get it up and running. But Mike Nesmith walked away from having anything to do with MTV.
1: Walked away from a billion dollars.
0: Wow. So you've got this guy, John Lack. He worked for Warner and he was ahead of a little startup cable channel emerging. You might have heard of called Nickelodeon. So that became the testing ground for these pop clips that, that Mike Nesmith had. These little 30-minute music video shows. It tested off the charts. They get the green light to make a -a 24-hour-a-day music video channel. Lack brings aboard a media executive named Robert Pittman, who had test-driven the music format by producing and hosting a 15-minute show called Album Tracks, only on New York City television station, WNBC, in the late 70s, just in New York City. Now remember, as you guys are aware, in 1980, cable TV only existed in small, scattered markets around the country, and your choices were CNN, ESPN, HBO, and the Weather Channel. And the Weather Channel was literally just your local weather. It looked like a, a computer screen from a Commodore 64, Texas Instruments computer. <laughs> right. There was no original programming available for young people. So so let me ask you, go back to the early 80s. What were you guys watching on TV in the 80s? I tell you what, uh,
3: network television, if you were lucky on a good day, I would catch uh, with the antenna, the Channel 38 out of Boston. I mean, you look through the TV guide, and it's 7 like, o'clock, Batman and Robin. I have to watch this and I would fiddle with those damn antennas until I could get channel 38 out of Boston. But mostly network stuff, you know, um, man, who didn't love the A-team at 12 or, um, you know, there's whatever network stuff there was. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It was, we had three, maybe, what? Yeah. The PBS. Oh, we yeah. never counted that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was a big TV addict going back as <laughs> as far back as I can remember, and in, in before MTV and before you know extended cable as we know it today. Basically, I was watching things like uh, a lot of sitcoms. Uh, what comes to mind? Cheers, Family Ties, mm-hmm. Growing Pains. I liked talk shows. Uh, Donahue was kind of the the starter of that genre, and we all know all the the. Uh, That kind of took a turn for the worse but it was endlessly entertaining even though it was trash television. Um, Late Night, absolute huge fan of David Letterman. Just absolutely obsessed with his show and a huge influence on my comedy career. And I love watching sports. You just mentioned TV thirty eight. Yeah. I can remember standing in the kitchen with a thirteen inch black and white with my brother and dad watching entire Bruins games. Absolutely, it was it was too much fun. And uh, yeah. I've always been interested in the news. And also, uh, if there was any type of stand up comedy on television, I would I would try and catch a glimpse of that as well. There was an independent channel out of Hartford twenty channel twenty
3: sex yes. Uh, Hogan's, Hogan's Heroes reruns. There you go. I, next thing you know, I'm
0: running around the house you know, doing the German accent. My mother's concerned. <laughs> but, but I ask you that to, to give our audience an example of you know, what our generation had for options uh, for TV and for, for entertainment. So if we go back to right before MTV debuted, and you're going to recognize some of these, but be in the mindset of a young teenager or preteen who wants something of their own to watch. And there's a few in here that we were definitely addicted to. But right before MTV came out, you know, starting with number one, these were the top shows that were being shown. Dallas, Dukes of Hazard, 60 Minutes, MASH, The Love Boat, The Jeffersons, Alice, Three's Company, Little House on the Prairie, One Day at a Time, Archie Bunker's Place, Magnum P.I., Happy Days, and the list goes on and on at about the top 25. Stuff we watch, Different Strokes, That's Incredible, Laverne and Shirley, Chips, Knott's Landing, The Waltons, more across the board mainstream America television, but really nothing for for the youth. And, And these guys kind of had the foresight to say, hey, we have a captive audience. What can we do with that? So let's jump ahead to December 1980 two guys we talked about before. Lack and Pittman go before the board at Warner Communications to pitch the music video channel. They show some of the videos that Mike Nesmith had them put together. Say, what do you think? A board member says, you know, I was talking about this meeting we were going to have today and I was talking to my teenage daughter telling about it and, and telling her about some of the pre-production stuff you sent us of the videos. And she just said, dad, this is going to be the next big thing. And in front of this whole boardroom of all these executives at Warner Communications, just because of what his daughter said, bam, they get greenlit and they're given $25 million to create MTV. So two-part question for you guys. Was there ever a band or artist you loved and then got turned off by once they started making music videos? Maybe you saw them as a sellout or the videos just plain sucked. Or was there ever a band you hated, but once you saw them on MTV, they kind of grew on you and you liked them then or you like them now?
3: Not personally. Every, every artist I saw on MTV, it was, I just absorbed it. I was so psyched. Nothing really turned me off. Nobody really seemed like a sellout to me. Very impressionable young kid. And I just I loved it all. There would be New Wave. There would be rock, classic stuff, Madonna. You know, Madonna gets her own category. But... It just it was just a great melting pot, and i I love the fact that it was just so much different so many different styles of music I got to see,
1: yeah, same answer as Aaron. I cannot think of one band that I didn't like before m t v and then liked after or that I did like before m t v and then ended up not liking based on music videos, yeah,
0: sure, and I'd have to agree with that too. you just it was <clears throat> you couldn't get enough of it, no matter yeah. what it was worth sitting through maybe you didn't like Simply Red, but you knew Van Halen was on next. Like you, you just, it was worth sitting through everything. You know, you don't get up at a movie theater and, oh, I don't like the beginning of this movie trailer. You're waiting for your great movie, so you're going to sit through everything and you just absorb it all.
1: And I know all three of us sitting here uh, appreciate art and appreciate talent. I just know that about you guys and I know it about myself. So perhaps I don't like a song, but I found something cool in the video.
3: Like you said earlier, I spent hours uh, at the VCR, at the go, re- ready, to, you know, play and record. And um, we talk about a video that I just didn't like. Tom Petty, Don't Come Around Here No More. I, when I, you know, 13-year-old Aaron didn't like it, I don't know. The song didn't appeal to me. And it was a strange concept video that I as I see now. It's brilliant. You know, it's great. And it's a great song. Just didn't, wasn't my cup of tea. But uh, Tom Petty's uh, Don't Come Around Here No More was one I left the room for. You know,
0: yeah, it had a creepy vibe to it, for real. A little bit. Sure. Now it's, oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, very artistic. <laughs> very. So <clears throat> to get back to it, they green light them. They give them $25 million. Uh, the only caveat is you have eight months. We want you up and running by August 1st, 1981. So the name of the channel is not even MTV yet. It's actually Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment Company. One of the co-founders wanted the name to be TV1, and some other ideas banged around the office were Around-the-clock rock, audio box, music first, rock box, and TVM. A statistics staffer of all just was listening to them spitball one day and says, Hey, wouldn't MTV sound much better than TVM? And it kind of caught on. And even then, nobody liked the name until the artwork was created and the iconic MTV logo was born. So if you remember, when they plant the flag, and we'll talk Mm. about that first broadcast, Uh and the flag of MTV turns a bunch of different colors. They had gone to an advertising company, and they came up with three or four different types of logos for them. And and they said, well, MTV, we're always in motion. We're always moving. We'll use them all. And that's what created their logo and all the different logos. Very cool. That is cool. So now… They have a name, they have a show, they have a channel and a logo. What's next? They need on-air talent to present these videos. I'm going to read for you word for word the exact ad as it ran in the papers looking for VJs. Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment Company is looking for five video DJs to host MTV. The music channel, WSEC's innovative new 24-a-day network that features video records, live concerts, Music news, interviews, and more. Seeking radio personalities, actors and actresses with good knowledge of popular music and a contemporary look. Resumes, three-quarter inch video cassette, audio tape, and pictures to MTV auditions, New York, New York. So, knock this one out of the park. Who are the original five MTV VJs?
3: JJ Jackson, Martha Quinn, Alan Hunter, Goodman, Mark Goodman, good. and Nina Blackwood. Who was your favorite? In the, in the history, overall. All day long, Martha Quinn, Girl Next Door, I crushing on on her to this day forget about it
1: <laughs> i i loved them all they had, they all brought something to the table great personalities great yeah. broadcasting voices always kept it interesting Every guy on the planet felt like they were the only one who had a crush on Martha Quinn, and sure. and they thought it was a secret. And yet, everyone else felt the same way. <laughs> I've heard it talked about yeah. on talk shows. I've heard it talked the, about the on poor woman. comedy shows, and and it's become part of pop culture. But really, all five of them were awesome. I yeah. love Triple J with the you know. J. J. Jackson
3: was cool. Yeah, yeah. and I,
1: all of them really uh, brought something special to the table, and and I and I. I, I liked the news segments as much as the music segments. I'm just a, a sucker for information, and I love to be entertained, and I also like to learn. MTV News. Oh, yeah.
3: Uh, was that New Year's Day that year when we learned Rick Allen from Def Leppard lost his arm? Right. Like, like, that, was, that was solemn news. Kurt Loder had to tell me that morning, and it was it, astounding. Holy holy crap. This happened to one of our beloved iconic Yeah, I, I had
1: one really big moment that sticks with me from MTV News. Um I had gone to a concert and then saw a court case in Springfield, Massachusetts (laughs) about the concert I was at Uh and the short version is the lead singer of Skid Row who had opened for Aerosmith that night. Somebody threw a glass bottle and hit him and he picked it up and whipped a fastball at what he (sighs) thought was the guy who threw it and it hit a teenage girl in the face and uh, he was in court for that and I just remember like,
0: whoa, man. I was at that show. show. We didn't even know each other and I was at that show.
1: I I was working at a uh, local restaurant on a friendlies franchise,
3: and I knew a cop that uh, had an in with the booking officer. He got me a copy of the arrest report. I made copies of that, went to the mall, and sold them two for a buck. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> made like 60 bucks that day. You should have been in court the next day, too.
3: Yeah, I
0: know. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so It was a good concert, not going to lie. So now we, we fast forward to broadcast day. It's Saturday, August 1st. 1981, the, the official birth of MTV. It's 12.01 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's officially launched with the words, Ladies and Gentlemen, Rock and Roll, which was spoken and voiced over by the co-founder, John Lack, and played over footage of the first space shuttle launch countdown of Columbia. Reason being, they were pretty broke with all their production costs, Um, And I learned in researching this that any footage of NASA is in the public domain. So you can take and do anything you want with it, any audiovisual. So they used that and just did the moon landing and they they implemented their flag over it. That was free advertising for them.
1: Very cool. And they Uh
0: used footage of the launch of the Apollo 11. Now get this. It wasn't even being broadcast in New York City because they wouldn't even get cable for almost another two years. So the entire staff, everyone who worked for MTV, the owners, the VJs, they had to take school buses to Fort Lee, New Jersey, go to the basement of a restaurant. They get there, and it's full of elderly people still out having dinner. They had to go downstairs to one of the only places within driving range that had cable lineup. It's now, now, picture this, guys. It's a birth of maybe one of the most recognizable channels in the history of television. The entire upstairs is filled with blue hairs eating, and they're all crammed in a basement. They even had to bring in a TV and watch it on, like, one of those old A.V. carts like you would watch in school. <laughs> and I love it. 3, 2, 1, what's the first video that gets aired on MTV? Buggles. Video Killed the Radio Star?
3: It I starts. Mean, if my
0: memory serves me correct. It starts, and <laughs> plays, then the signal goes. Perfect. Oops. They're all in the basement, and, and it comes back. Um, but Video Killed the Radio Star by the Buggles. And if you look at interviews with Alan Hunter, Martha Quinn, they say to this day that still gives them chills. Mark Goodman said when when it started playing, he started tearing up uh, just watching that because in the room, you just, they knew. All right, it looks like uh, we're just about out of time for this episode. We still have a lot more MTV stuff to talk about. Aaron, can you come back and talk to us again? I'd love to. All right, you guys, that's going to wrap it up for our pilot episode of Something to Say. Thank you so much to you, the listeners, for being a part of this with us. We've got so much more great MTV stories to tell you guys. Make sure you come back to our next episode. Find out some really cool stuff like how David Bowie and Eddie Van Halen saved Michael Jackson's career. Find out how Pete Townsend and Mick Jagger kept MTV from going broke. Find out what the top videos of the 80s were and what the first true reality TV show was. All that and comedy, music, sports, and everything you guys want to hear about life here on Something to Say.